This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. This is episode 13, and our guest is Josh Satin. He is owner of Satin Hill Farms in North Carolina. It's a small-scale operation, and Josh is going to talk to us today about why he does what he does, why he got started, what he's learned now in his second season in operation, and he's going to talk to us about how he sells locally to chefs and families and why he does no-till. It's a really good conversation, and we're going to cover a lot of really good topics. Um, And don't forget, we're still doing the Yeti giveaway head over and follow our Instagram page at farm underscore traveler. And then on our iTunes podcast page, leave a written review. We've got about seven written reviews. So that means seven people are officially entered in the podcast. I mean, we all know those Yeti tumblers are super expensive. So this is a really good way to get a free one. So it's a win-win for all of us. So follow us on Instagram, leave a review on iTunes, helps us out a ton. We would really appreciate it. Anyway, Hope you enjoy episode 13 with Josh Satin of Satin Hill Farms. Well, welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. Josh Satin, how are you doing? I'm doing excellent. How are you, Trevor? Doing well. So you have got a small-scale operation in North Carolina, but, but before we talk on that, touch base on us, or tell us a little bit more about your background, kind of where you came from, and what kind of got you started with your, your, with your operation. Definitely. Uh, my wife and I are both from Boston, and uh, my previous careers were in high school teaching and professional brewing. And when we moved, uh, we lived in Colorado for a while, but when we moved to North Carolina a few years ago, uh, I spent a couple years doing some more brewing and then just wanted to do something else. I've always sort of, you know, kind of been conscious about environmental stuff. And, you know, I, I always joke about this, like, you know, driving a Prius and being really good at recycling doesn't cut it after a while. You kind of just want to be a little more sustainable. Um, so we we started with, um, we bought our house 
a few years ago. Uh, we bought a two-acre lot. It's kind of a suburban area. Um, so I kind of say it's in between rural and suburban, but you know, depending on where you're from, you probably just think it's suburban. I'm a, from a pretty urban area. Um, and so we just started uh, developing things here. I uh, started with chickens and started growing vegetables, and it's just uh, turned into a business. It wasn't a sort of deliberate idea from the beginning. Gotcha. So you you pick your own produce, and you I've, you told me that you give it to families and to local chefs. Kind of how did you get that started where you deliver your produce to local chefs? Yeah, so uh, I'll start with the family's part. Um, you know, I just started growing vegetables. And so this is my second season. I started, uh, you know, sort of mid to late spring last year. And I had a lot of friends that wanted to buy the vegetables I was growing. And that's sort of how that started. And so I deliver weekly boxes of vegetables to families. And the chef thing is something I'm getting into recently. And um, I, I love it so far. The chefs I've been working with have been awesome. And so that's that's more of a word of mouth thing and just networking to um, to make some relationships. It's great because they can get exactly what they want. It's super fresh. You know, if they want things a certain size, I can get it for them. So it's it's just, you know, the quality is just top notch for them. They love it. That's really cool. Have you have, do you do you go to any farmers markets at all? No, I decided not to do farmers markets, and the main reason for that is that I don't want to give up my Saturdays. Uh, I have a wife and, and two young boys, and I work a lot, and my wife works a lot, and I mean, I do work on the weekends too, the farms at my house, so the, <laughs> there's always something to do. Um, but yeah, I don't do farmers markets, and so the other sort of options I thought about in terms of sales outlets was, um, you know, like a traditional CSA where you sort of take money up front. And you just, you know, give up boxes for so many weeks during the season. And I was not comfortable with that last year. And the main reason was I wasn't confident in my growing abilities and, and you know, my ability to fill up boxes. So that wasn't really, to me, I didn't think it was a good option. And so I do, uh, my boxes are weekly. So people can opt in and out as they want. And the boxes will vary in price just a little bit, but depending on, you know, what goes in the boxes. So that's been really nice for them. Uh, it's also been a challenge for me because I don't have, you know, people aren't always sticking around week to week and some people sort of fade out and I have to be looking for customers and increasing my base, you know, fairly regularly. Um, and then the other option is, you know, sort of more of a wholesale market selling to a aggregator as a place that, you know, gathers stuff from a lot of farmers and resells it or selling, uh, you know, wholesale to retailers like supermarkets and stuff. And the thing that that was not appealing to me because the you know, the profit's not as much, the margins are a lot smaller. So for me to make this work on such a small scale, I have to be selling directly to either the restaurants or directly to consumers. Yeah, how is that like working with directly to the consumers and working directly with the chefs and avoiding all the middlemen, which I know that probably super complicates the process. So what's that like to like walk into a restaurant and say, hey, I know you want some really good high quality produce. I've got it, let's work together. What's that been like? Uh, as I said, I'm sort of just getting into that world. Um, but the chefs I've been working with, usually when I, if I can set up a meeting somehow, either you know someone put me in touch or you know whatever, and I'll bring in some, I bring in some samples of whatever I have at the time and a price sheet, and sort of just sit down. Usually, you know, I find that you know if you can make an appointment with a chef somehow and say, hey, come in, hey, they'll say like, come in Tuesday at 11 o'clock, and you show up, and they have, they know, cause they're they're crazy busy people. And so, and I used to work in, in brew pubs, so I understand the whole back of house thing and I get it. And, you know, don't walk into a restaurant at 
four or five o'clock, you know, they're getting ready for dinner and that sort of thing. Like you find a time that works for them. And, you know, usually late morning is good if you're just going to walk into a restaurant and, and approach people. But yeah, the best thing you can do is set up a meeting, bring some samples with you in a price sheet and sit down and they'll, they'll try it. Now, if your stuff is that good, they're going to be pumped. And that's, that's really the bottom line. Like chefs, from what I found, and this isn't for everybody, but it's, it's not as much of the ideology of small farming or, you know, organic or they, they care about quality and freshness. That's like the bottom line. And so if you can deliver that to them, they're going to be excited. And usually when I talk to the chefs, you know, do a little, do a little homework, see what kind of food they're serving. What does their menu look like? How big is the restaurant? Um, you know, and they'll tell you what they're looking for. You know, I need this much of this, or do you have this, or do you grow that? Or I'm interested in this. And, you know, I'm not going to, with the farm my scale, like I'm not going to go to a huge, you know, let's say a, a big hotel or a chain restaurant or something like that. Like I don't have the volume to support it. So you have to know your limitations. You know, some places were like, they need, you know, hundred pounds of lettuce a week. Like, can you do that? Like, you, you know, if you can't do that, then you, that may not be the right restaurant for you. So you want to find sort of the, the right matches for, for what you're doing. Yeah, no, totally agree. Um, that seems really cool also in this, um, I know you've touched base on it a little bit on your social media and on YouTube, um, but this whole sustainable growing trend that we've kind of seen the past couple of years. So it's really cool that local chefs are able to buy from you and you're able to provide to local chefs instead of them having to transport in lettuce or cucumbers or whatever from totally different areas of the country. So that's really cool. Um, so you grow Reddit or radish, lettuce, cucumbers, what are kind of your specialty crops or stuff that you've really enjoyed growing? And, and I know that you've, you also have chickens. So what are some of your favorite crops that you've enjoyed growing over the past two seasons? Absolutely. Uh, I mainly <clears throat> focus on greens and mostly my biggest crop is lettuce. I do a lettuce mix and I grow that year round. Uh, so we're in Raleigh, North Carolina. We're in zone 7B. It does get pretty cold here in the winter, um, but I was able to grow all last winter with some you know, some protection. And we do a lot of baby greens too. I say we, it's me. It's the whole farm is me. Um, we do a lot of baby greens like baby kale, arugula, um, some spinach, um, you know, stuff like that. That's the main focus here is grow crops that are quick to grow and you can get a good price for. So, you know, I'm my total cultivation, cultivated area with all my beds is an eighth of an acre. And I, that was, almost double what I had last year. So it's super small, but the reality is you can get a lot of production out of a small area growing crops like that. And so th that's the majority of what I grow. I also grow microgreens, which I grow inside and I can grow those year round. And that's a whole other discussion. Uh, that's a whole different kind of um, product, but I do some seasonal crops too. So we're doing cherry tomatoes this year. We're doing some cucumbers, some patty pan squash. Um, I just have a couple of beds of each of those just to offer some seasonal stuff. And, you know, it's just nice to have a little bit of a variety. Uh, and then we are, yeah, we're also doing chickens, as you asked about. Uh, I have just under 50 laying hens, and I'm doing a rotational grazing system with them. And the nice thing is I found a, a farm that's producing local feed. So I go directly to them and, and get it. And, yeah, it's been great. I take the eggs um, as a add-on product to my families. Not every family gets eggs every week, but you know, if they want them, they can add them on and I bring them with their box. I deliver right to their houses. So it's easy enough to bring them a dozen eggs. And some of the chefs are interested in the eggs too for you know brunch and stuff like that. So yeah, uh, part of the reason for having chickens is, um, is really, you know, it's nice to sell eggs and they can be profitable uh, in the right market with, with a good amount of marketing. 
Um, but the other thing is they, they, the chickens do a lot of other things for me on my farm. They, um, they prepare garden areas and as I'm rotating them around, they're building soil and regenerating the soil and, you know, building my pasture. So there, it, there's a lot of, you know, intricacy to it, but yeah, it's really nice having animals on the farm. Yeah, it seems like everything there can kind of work in harmony. Like the chickens can help control the pests and everything. So that seems really cool that at your small scale, you've got everything kind of working together. Um, so you said you're in your second season right now? Yes, correct. Uh, what was your first season like? Like, What was it like converting your backyard to get ready for all this? And what are some things you kind of learned in that first season that kind of prepared you for your second? Um, it's just sort of humbling. I mean... I don't use insecticides, pesticides, herbicides, that kind of stuff. And I use natural inputs. So for me, you know, I wanted to go all in. I didn't want to sort of, you know, I wanted to basically pick the hardest way to grow things. Right. And, you know, you watch a lot of market gardeners or small scale farmers on YouTube, you read their books and they make it look so easy and you go out there and you're like, yeah, I'm just going to do what, you know, this guy does. And all of a sudden it doesn't grow or it grows for a couple weeks and then it gets attacked by insects. Um, you know, one of the biggest things was, you know, the yields that people talk about and what you should expect, like you're not going to get anywhere close to that in the first year. And there's going to be a lot of failures. And, and then, you know, the end of the last season or not the end, but sort of like, you know, August, September, I was really starting to get things dialed in. And then we got two hurricanes within three weeks of each other. And, you know, we didn't get a ton of wind, but we got each storm was, I don't know how many inches of rain, but a lot. And basically I lost everything twice. I, I lost everything. Just <clears throat> all the greens just basically melted when we got like six inches of rain. And I had through and, you know, replanted everything. Everything started growing again. We got another hurricane. Everything got toasted again. And then I replanted again. And then by then it was getting cold. And so things didn't get really big enough before it got cold. So, you know, it's, it's a learning experience. It's, when things are going well, things feel great. And then the lows are low and you have to accept that as a farmer. Um, so that was one of the things. And then the other thing is, which I knew going in cause I had another small business in the past and so much of farming is that it's a business and you have to market and you have to sell, you can grow whatever you want, but if you're not out there selling it and getting money for it, then you're not going to be profitable. Yeah, it seems like you've got a really good um, handle on things in terms of marketing because your Instagram page has got like, what, 11,000 followers? And then you've got your YouTube channel, which I think also has a, a couple thousand followers. Uh, how have you been using those to kind of build your brand and kind of letting people know how impactful a small-scale operation can be? Absolutely. Uh, so Instagram has been my main uh, thing that I've been using for marketing, and I work really hard at it. And... I think a lot of people may not realize that that sort of marketing, they're like, oh, you just take some pictures and you post them online. But there's oh, there's a lot of work that goes into it and just, you know, have to stay on top of it. I post to Instagram every single day. And, you know, some days it's easy. There's lots of things to take pictures of and tell stories. Uh, Instagram uh, is great, I think, in the farming and food world because it's very visual and people can flip through it and you know, people that have desk jobs or whatever, they can, you know, they're sitting there staring at their phone and they see beautiful pictures of chickens and vegetables and they love it. Like, it's great. Um, and so Instagram for me has been the biggest marketing tool for sure. Uh, but it's been interesting because when I first started, it was kind of a way just to show what was going on on the farm, help promote the business. And in the last couple months, it's starting to morph a little bit. Um, I've, I started... 
I don't know how many months ago, but I just started realizing that I was getting a lot of questions about farming and gardening on Instagram. And so I used, I was a high school teacher for five years and I just lately have sort of taken on, I don't know, I've wanted to sort of help educate other growers out there. And so that's when I started doing YouTube and yeah, YouTube's been growing pretty quickly. I think I, I did my first post end of March and now it's mid June and I'm over 20,000 subscribers, which is crazy. Um, but it's been so much fun. Like I, the interactions with people have been insane. So, uh, and I don't want to also forget about Facebook too. Um, all my Instagram posts get forwarded onto Facebook and, uh, Facebook, you can, you know, say what you want about Facebook, but, uh, their ads can be very effective. Uh, there's a reason why Facebook has made so much money. So, you know, with good content, you can use Facebook for targeting, uh, targeted, uh, ads and marketing and they work really well. Um, so there's, there's a lot of pieces to it. Now the YouTube channel, I'm not sure if that's going to help, uh, sell vegetables. I'm not sure yet, but I, I think that's a whole nother thing we can talk about. Yeah. It seems like you're covering all your bases with, um, Instagram, YouTube, like you've got people that might be interested in your produce going to Instagram and people that might be interested in small scale gardening and they can go to your YouTube and kind of see how you're doing it, why you're doing it. And what are some things that they can do? which is really cool. Um, so you, you've mentioned no-till. What what are some benefits that you've noticed by using no-till on your farm? Like what are some reasons that other people should practice the no-till method? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to I'm not going to tell anyone what the right way to do anything is. There's context to everything. So, you know, I I think you can be really ideological about how you want to farm or how other people should farm, but the reality is there's a lot of people out there to feed and, you know, we can't all if we all went to this style of farming on this scale, like one out of every, what, like 10 people would have to be a farmer. So I know I just want to keep that in mind when I'm talking about this. Um, but what I'm doing here is trying to make my life, my land, my world around here and my community as, as good as possible. So I love no-till and I have only done it this way. So I don't own a tractor. I don't own a two-wheeler or four-wheel tractor. Um, I think the biggest piece of machinery I own is operated by a cordless drill. And so uh, it just sort of made sense to me that when I started thinking about how to set up the farm, I did, I did watched a lot of videos and a lot of reading. And, you know, I really went down the permaculture wormhole before I started all this. And that's sort of what, you know, kicked this thing off. But yeah, so with no-till, the, the biggest benefits that I found and continue to read about is that the main thing is focusing on soil health and soil biology. Uh, when you run a rototiller, through a bed or through a field, you break up a lot of the biology that's going on in there. So you're breaking up all the the fungal life um, and a lot of the animals and, and worms and stuff like that that's in there. Um, and you're sort of, you know, when you invert the soil, you are also, all the carbon that we're trying to keep in the ground becomes oxidized and turns into CO2. So that's an environmental concern as well. But, you know, from, from a more practical standpoint, what I found is that, you know, man, things just grow really well and there's very little weeds. And that's another benefit is that when you invert the soil with a rototiller, you're bringing all those weed seeds up to the surface and they germinate and grow. So I really don't weed very much. And I mean, most of my weeding is done in a sense in how I prep my beds, but those are some of the main things is soil health uh, and less weeds, I would say. Those are the biggest things. 
That's some really good points. And I think you kind of touched base on this, um, that context is everything. I mean, no-till method seems to work really, really well for you. In my backyard, I've got a ton of weeds, and I've tried no-tilling, but it's not as successful because we have a lot of wind, and a lot of new weed seeds will come in. So it's it's something that might not work for me. But, I mean, yeah, like every little backyard or every little garden is its own ecosystem, and different things are going to work differently for that little ecosystem. That's a really cool way of thinking, and I really appreciate that you do that, that context is everything. And, yeah, like if, every, if everybody practiced no-till, like one in ten people would have to be, be a farmer. And... I mean, you probably know this. I think by 2050, there's going to be, what, like 9 billion people on the planet. And, I mean, we're already having trouble feeding them. So more and more people are going to need to focus on agriculture, grow their own produce. So um, I noticed in one of your social media posts, you were talking about buzzwords. Like, you kind of try to avoid buzzwords. Why do you do that? And what are some examples of, of some of those buzzwords? Absolutely. I think the biggest one is organic. Um, I am not certified organic. I don't plan on being certified for a few reasons. The biggest reason is that I'm certified by my customers. Now, most of the families that I sell to, I know them personally. A lot of them have been to the farm. Um, they know how I grow. They know what I use, what I don't use. And that is the ultimate form of certification. Now, again, context is important. Now, if I was selling to supermarkets... The organic label might be helpful from a business perspective, but I don't like to get caught up in it. Now, I use the word no-till a lot, but someone who's um, really hardcore about no-till might look at my methods and say, that's not no-till, you're using a broad fork. And okay, so I'm not, you know, I don't want to get caught up in those things, but I think a lot of people out there, when you hear the word organic, and this is, you know, a confusion for customers and, or customers, consumers in general, people that eat food and pay for food and, you know, want to know more about it is that the word organic is not what people think it means. And so I don't like to get caught up in it because it's complicated, right? Because if you're an organic farm, you can still use organic pesticides. And when you tell people that, they're like, what do you mean? Organic, they don't spray anything. I'm like, yeah, they do. They just use different ones. So, and again, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying that's the, that's not the way that I've decided to grow. Um, so you hear, well, let's see some other buzzwords, organic, no-till, um, sustainable, regenerative. These are all sort of buzzwords that go around right now. And um, I don't know, I think it's hard for consumers because, uh, you know, it's the labels, it's what does all natural mean? You know, all these things that you see on labels, it's 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 really hard. It takes a lot of effort to really get to know about your food if, if you care about it. Yeah, no, totally. Um, yeah, I mean, consumers just want, I mean, you and I are consumers also. I mean, we just want what's best for us, what's best for our family, what's the cheaper, safer option. And yeah, when you tell people that, oh, organic does have pesticides or it does use fertilizers, they're like, oh, I, I thought that it didn't. Like, no, it actually does. They're organic in nature, but but still. Yeah, I, I mean, there's so many different buzzwords going on, like GMO, non-GMO, <clears throat> non-GMO project verified, um, sustainable, all that jazz. And if you look at, I, don't, I mean, you name a product, if you go to a grocery store, you will see some sort of label that the average consumer is going to look at and just say, oh, well, it's sustainable, so it's got to be true. So let me buy it. Absolutely. And non-GMO is a great example, too. People ask me if I'm non-GMO, and I say, there is no such thing as GMO lettuce. Like, that doesn't exist. Like, there's only, like, 10 or 12 yeah. things that are GMO. Like, <laughs> you know, I don't grow GMO lettuce because it doesn't exist anyways, uh, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Or that I love it when it says non-GMO organic because organic means non-GMO. So yeah, it's it's so much marketing and it's it's confusing and and just tiring for people. Yeah, I get so mad anytime we go to the grocery store and there is every time I, I see it and I just vent and I break every single bottle. It's non-GMO 
Himalayan sea salt. And I'm like, first off, salt's a mineral. You can't genetically modify it. And there is no GMO salt on the market. Like, that is just a stupid label. That's like saying, oh, this water is, is clean to drink. Like, yeah. duh. It's, it's, like, it's an infuriating yeah. label. Yeah, it's like gluten-free apple juice, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Nuts. Um, so going off of that, what do you see the farmer-consumer relationship right now? Like, obviously, there's a lot of buzzwords that are beginning thrown in there just from marketers to kind of get consumers to buy their products. So where do you see the consumer-farmer relationship right now? I think it really depends on where you are and sort of, um, you know, different different places in the country, different economic, um, you know, brackets, you know, income brackets, I should say, like, you know, it's very different depending on where you are and, you know, how much money people have and how much education people have. And, you know, the thing is that people in the United States are so used to cheap food. It's just the reality. Like, you know, you can go to any of the cheaper supermarkets and you like, I'll go in there and I'll look at some of the produce and I'm just like, how do they sell, you know, tomatoes for, a dollar twenty nine a pound, or how do you buy broccoli for this much, or whatever? Um, people are just used to not spending a lot of money on food, and I think that's going to be a challenge moving forwards. Now, one of the things I get, I have trouble with sometimes, is the food I grow is really expensive, and it's not accessible to everybody. And that's that's another thing that's you know I, I can't really do much about that right now, but it does weigh on me from time to time. And I I don't know if I could describe to you exactly the relationship right now. I think it's complicated. I think there is a good amount of people that are starting to care more about it. And there's, I've heard, you know, the the back to land movement, which I don't know when the original one was maybe in the seventies. And I think there's a little bit more of that. There's a, there's a little bit of a push for homesteading and growing some of your own food and just being a little more conscious about it. Because I think people realize that the food tastes better when it's fresher and when it's, you know, grown in those ways. So I, I think people are starting to learn about it. And, you know, the other thing is restaurants, there's more, you know, farm to table restaurants, people sourcing local ingredients. And, you know, I don't think they'd be doing it if people didn't want it. So I think it's, I think it's still a small movement in the overall food picture, but I think it's important that we continue down that road. Yeah, totally agree. I think the, the more steps you remove between the farmer and the consumer, the better the food's going to be. The fresher the food's going to be, the tastier it's going to be. And I think that's a really cool, cool method. And I think more and more people should do what you do and have small-scale operations where they deliver more to chefs, to local families, and all that jazz to where, I mean, we can have a huge impact on the ag environment and just, I mean, just in the environment as a total. Um, so if somebody wanted to get into starting their own little small scale operation, what would what would be your what would be your advice for them? There's a lot of ways to approach this. Um, it depends on the person, you know, and how they learn. And maybe this is from a teacher in me, but you know, I'm I'm a very self learned person. I mean, I've spent way too much time in school. Don't get me wrong, uh, with lots of degrees, but um, you know, I can pick things up from watching other things and reading and and watching videos and stuff like that. So. Some people might want more hands-on experience. Um, some farmers offer internships or they'll let you come by on the weekends and help out. And, you know, maybe you're just pulling weeds or you're, you know, transplanting something or harvesting something, but you're there, you're involved. You can talk to the farmer. Um, if that's your style and you want to be more social and sort of, you know, um, hands-on about it, I think that could be a good way to do that is, you know, donate some time somewhere, uh, that sort of thing. And, I'd say go to a farmer's market and find a farmer that seems cool and chat them up a bit. Um, that's a good way to find a farmer that's local. Um, 
And, uh, you know, there's tons of information online. Uh, I'm a huge fan of YouTube. I've watched a gajillion hours of YouTube, and now I'm so excited to be putting content back out to share with everybody else. Um, there's so many farmers that are putting content out there uh, for free. It's just, that's one of the coolest things is how much information's on YouTube. Um, and so that's, that's a great resource. And I really recommend finding a couple of people that what they do makes sense to you and that you see, you think you could incorporate with your farm or your garden and pull from a lot of different people. And I've said that plenty of times before in my content is that, you know, a lot of the stuff I didn't come up with, I just pulled things, little bits and pieces from all these other places and, and then make them my own. But, you know, if someone's looking to get started, just start with something like plant a small bed, like grow some microgreens, get a few chickens, you know, just, do something to see if you like it and uh, and to get some experience. I think that's important. I like that. That's really good advice. Um, so what is your overall goal for the next five, 10 years for um, Satin Hill Farms? What, what's your goal for the next five or 10 years? Oh man, dude, that's a, that's a tough question. Um, <laughs> I feel like I change careers every five years. Well, actually I do. So um, I hope I'm doing this longer than five years. I don't really know. I mean, even in the first... Um, in the first year and change, things have changed so much. And uh, I'm not really sure what's going to happen. I, I, I really enjoy this right now. And I don't know what doors is going to open for me down the line. You know, partly I'm an entrepreneur, right? So I like running a small business and working for myself. So, you know, we, we live here, we have land, I enjoy it um, for right now. Um, I think bigger picture wise, I, I'd really love to, you know, what I said before is to help educate people in terms of growing food, if it's farmers, gardeners, um, you know, or anything in between. I think, I think it's important that, you know, we learn and share this information because most people don't know how to do any of this stuff. Like most people you talk to don't know how things are grown or, or, you know, where things come from or how this works. So I think, you know, like I, I talk to people and, you know, I'd say, you know, I talk about chickens and they're like, I was like, I don't have a rooster. And they're like, well, how do they lay eggs? And you have to get into that whole conversation about how this actually works. And so I think there's a disconnect there. And I think it's important that um, I want to take part in trying to share and and help people learn uh, to be more knowledgeable about their food, but also to hopefully for them to get more involved. I like it, man. Well, I've learned so much just by watching some of your YouTube videos and your Instagram. So as I'm trying to make more and more of a backyard garden, I'll be watching more and more of your stuff. So you got a fan in me. Um, so if people want to follow you, we'll we'll link your website, Instagram, and everything on our little on a little info in the podcast. But if people want to follow you, where can they go? Best place if you want to um, watch more in in detail stuff is uh, my YouTube channel, and you can search for me. It's Josh Satin S A T T I N. Or if you want to follow along on Instagram, it's at Satin Hill Farm, S-A-T-T-I-N Hill Farm. And uh, you can also check out uh, that the same content is going to be on Facebook as well for right now. Um, but, you know, I, you know, I'm very active and I try to interact with everyone who shoots, a, shoots me a message. So, um, you know, those are the two best places to, to uh, see what I'm up to. Josh, this has been a really cool conversation, learning about small scale operations, kind of why you're doing what you do. Uh, we wish you the best of luck, man. And thanks for talking to us. Oh, Trevor, uh, awesome being on here, and uh, thanks for having me. Hey, no problem. Thanks. We'll talk to you soon. Hey, everyone. 
We're trying to make things easier for you to listen to the podcast. We are now a part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective, and that means you can now find us on an additional platform. We're now available on the Waypoint app on your Apple TV, Roku, or Amazon Fire Stick, smart TVs like Samsung, and even game systems. While you're on there, check out over 2,500 of the best hunting and fishing shows and short films. Download the app and watch and listen anywhere.